It's a great privilege to be here once again, and I do bring greetings from Johannesburg, from Heritage Baptist Church in Johannesburg. Um, again, always praying for you, and uh, yeah, uh, Rian and I have spoken, so try and come through more often, and uh, also in future bring more, uh, more people with. I know if I offered, all the students would want to come with. The only problem is then I have to take them home afterwards. And uh, they're spread out all over Johannesburg, so uh, probably only get home at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, but uh, do you want to bring more people uh, through, and, and Lord willing, we'll do that. Um, so this evening, I, I'm going to preach on, on giving, uh, not because Rian said, please preach on giving uh, or, or anything like that. <laughs> Uh, just because I've been preaching through 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 uh, deal quite a lot with giving. And uh, I just thought, well, let me preach on it because I'm the visiting preacher. You can moan it. You know, once I'm le- I've gone, then you can moan about me. But Rion is still here, and so he's fine. Uh, so just, just to set your, your heart at ease, it's not because of any need or any reason. It's just because what I've been going through and hopefully this will be helpful because I think there is a lot of confusion when it comes to, to money uh, and, and the church. So I, there's really these two extremes. You find those churches where every Sunday they're talking about money, asking for money, uh, and really trying to put people on a guilt trip, saying, you know, if there's things wrong in your life, it's because you're not giving. Uh, they'll sing sort of 20 songs five times over. And then they'll have half an hour about giving, uh, talk about giving, and then they'll have a 10-minute sermon. Uh, and that happens every Sunday. And so it's, you know, the obsession is with money, but it's really from a place of guilt, trying to guilt people into giving. And the Bible in 2 Corinthians says, you know, no, that's not what the Lord wants. He wants a cheerful giver, and not from a place of guilt, not from a place of trying to manipulate God. Uh, someone has called it McDonald's Christianity. You, you know, you're the drive-through. You pull up, you give your order, next window you pay your money, and then you pick up your order. Uh, and that's the sort of teaching in, in a lot of the church, unfortunately, that you, 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 know, you order what you want from God, you give some money, and then you, you get it. God is this cosmic genie. And then on the other hand, nobody talks about money. Other churches where they just don't even talk about it, and there's confusion about money. You know those people that say, you know, three things you never talk about, uh, sex, religion, and money. Okay, and in fact, the Bible deals with all those topics. Okay, and uh, we want to walk in the light when it comes to this this teaching. So the the devil has been very good at breeding, breeding either ignorance or confusion when it comes to the topic of money, and yet it is a very very important topic. Um, uh, I read somewhere that there's more verses about money in the Bible than on uh, grace and prayer put together. Okay, so. It is a big topic in Scripture. So I want us to, to look at, at uh, this theme from what we call a biblical theological perspective. Okay, biblical theology. So you might be thinking, well, I was hoping all of our theology would be biblical. That's a strange name. Uh, well, it's a, it's a technical word for following a doctrine or themes uh, through Scripture. So all the way sort of from Genesis through Revelation, and especially how that shift occurs with the coming of Christ. 
So uh, it's sort of the progression of redemptive history. And you can take any doctrine and see how it, uh, it's expanded upon as you, as you go through the Bible and then what happens with the coming of Christ. So that's how I want to look at this idea of giving or tithing. Uh, and so we're going to jump around. We're going to go to a few, a few passages. So please keep your Bibles or your tablets or your phones in front of you and let's uh, go to various passages. So the first thing I want to say is that uh, the New Testament doesn't teach on tithing. Okay. Uh, the Lord Jesus does mention tithing. He talks about the Pharisees who tithe mint and cumin, so they were, they were tithing even the herbs from their herb garden. Uh, but he's actually uh, challenging them, confronting them, because they don't really care about the weightier matters of the law. Uh, they don't really care about grace and mercy. They're obsessed with these uh, minutia. Uh, so that's, tithing is mentioned, and then it's mentioned again in Hebrews when it refers to Melchizedek, and Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. But when you come to the Apostles' doctrine, they don't teach that we must tithe. Tithe literally means 10%. Okay, so a giving of 10%. So if you're in a church where they say, guys, you need to make sure that you tithe, uh, you need to be careful because the New Testament doesn't say that. Uh, it does teach cheerful giving. However, that doesn't mean, oh, I don't have to give 10%. That's fantastic. I'm going to give less from now on. Uh, some, some of you need to give more than 10%. You need to give proportionately to what you, you earn and what you spend and what you need. But we'll look at that. But I just want to start off there. But uh, the idea of giving goes all the way through the Scriptures. The idea of sacrificial giving. So we already find sacrifices back with Cain and Abel, don't we? So that's before the Mosaic law is even given. Uh, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, we don't have a record of the Lord telling them to do that, but how do they know to do that? The Lord must have told them what to do. When we come later on to in Genesis to the account of Abraham and Melchizedek, uh, Abraham gives a tithe. He gives 10% to Melchizedek. Again, this understanding of sacrificial giving uh, was already there before the nation of Israel came into existence and God uh, covenanted with them in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so I just wanted you to see that. So as we we're following this theme of giving all the way through the Bible, it's there already before the law is given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, there is this, this giving, sacrificial giving. Then when we come to the Mosaic law, to Israel as a nation, as the covenant people of God, there are very specific instructions given when it comes to, to giving. Uh, and really there are three tithes that are commanded of the children of Israel. So maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you just thought there's one tithe. Uh, there were actually three tithes. Uh, there was a tithe for the needy or the poor, the vulnerable. There was a tithe for the priests, the Levites, and there was a tithe for feasts. So three tithes. Uh, now, the way it worked was that you had to give uh, every year 10% of your income to the priests, to supporting the Levitical tribe. Okay, so remember, they were not given any land, 
they were just called to serve in the temple and to serve God's people. And so to support them, to enable them to survive, uh, you had to give 10% every year. And then you also had to set apart 10% for feasts. We'll look at that in, in more detail. So you had to set aside 10% of your income every year for feasts. And then every three years, you had to set apart 10% to care for the, the needy, uh, the poor, the widows and orphans in, in the covenant community within Israel. So every year, you were actually giving 23 and a third percent of your, your income. Uh, you had to tie that. Uh, Josephus, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, famous Jewish historian. He was a general in the, in the Jewish army uh, that fought against Rome. He was quite a sneaky guy because he, um, he got surrounded by the Romans. And so they said, okay, we don't want to get caught. What we'll do is we'll, we will sort of kill ourselves. Uh, and I think, so what, what you had to do was you had to kill the person next to you. And, uh, uh, and anyway, he worked it in such a way that he was the last guy standing. And so he made it. And uh, he then said, he, he, he said to the Romans, you know, I had a vision, you're going to be the next Caesar. And he ingratiated himself into, into um, uh, Titus and his father's uh, good books, or his son's good books. And um, uh, anyway, he recorded a history and uh, very important for Christians, uh, a, lot of, a lot of very interesting things from this history, especially regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. But he says this, he, he says, in addition to the two tithes, which I have already directed you to pay each year, the one for the Levites, the one for the priests, and the other for the banquets, for the feasts, you should devote a third every third year to the distribution of such things as are lacking to widowed women and orphan children. So there, Josephus is confirming what the Bible teaches. And we'll look at those passages so you know I'm not just making it up. Um, uh, so these are given to Israel, these three tithes. This is what you have to do with your, your income. Uh, you are to tithe 23 and a third percent. And so we're going to look at each one of these, and I think this is a helpful paradigm. I found it helpful. Hopefully you'll find it helpful for what we are to do with our money as we come into the new covenant. Uh, so this biblical theology, you're following a shift. Things develop in the Old Testament but then the coming of Christ, there is a shift, there is a change, but the things continue in some way. So, for example, to give you an example, uh, remember the tabernacle? There was this tent uh, that um, was, was a place of meeting between God and man, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant was kept there. And then, remember, Solomon built a, a permanent structure. He built a temple, and that became the focus for the Jewish people in Jerusalem was very, very important. It was, it was a place where God dwelt. But when we come to the new covenant, remember Jesus says that he's the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. So the idea of temple continues, but what we find is that the temple is now Jesus Christ and those who belong to him. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you're the temple of God? So we're not looking for a special building in Jerusalem. We're no longer obsessed with that. That was something that pointed to something greater. So with the coming of Christ, the whole temple idea is now fulfilled in Him. And so we're going to see the same with these different tithes. What happens? 
as we come into the new covenant. And so they, they don't mention tithing, but they do speak about giving. Now some people have said, oh, because it doesn't mention tithing, I can give a whole lot less. You know, I don't need to worry about it. It's, joy, it's cheerful giving. I feel pretty cheerful about giving 1%. You know, um, I'm happy to do that, so I'll, I'll do that. Well, that certainly wouldn't be the expectation of the Apostle Paul. Uh, when he says God wants a cheerful giver, he wouldn't be expecting you to say, oh, I can just give as little as I can happily give. Um, the new covenant doesn't work like that. Uh, it's quite interesting that a lot of people have this idea that, you know, when I read the Old Testament, God seems really nasty and horrible. And then I come to the New Testament and God is full of love and grace. Uh, in fact, God doesn't change, but you could actually argue the opposite. The whole of the Old Testament is looking forward to redemption. There is hope. It's full of hope. There is salvation coming. The New Testament is pointing forward to judgment. Okay? There is a time coming, Christ will come again in judgment. To give you an example of uh, the differences, in the Old Testament, polygamy was allowed by God. Um, remember when David committed sin with Bathsheba? Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, the Lord says, if you had wanted more wives, I would have given you more wives. Isn't that interesting? Polygamy was allowed. Uh, it seems that divorce was a lot easier in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, polygamy is clearly wrong for Christians. Okay? It's absolutely wrong. There's not even, it's not even up for debate. Okay? Uh, things are now more difficult. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in a special way. Uh, God expects a higher degree of holiness. God expects more from us because more light and more, uh, uh, more understanding has been given to us. We live this side of the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so under the Old Testament law, and if you go and read in the Old Testament, there's an example of a guy on the, on the Sabbath who goes and fetches sticks to make a fire. He's stoned to death. He was not to work on the Sabbath. You break that law under two or three witnesses, death. Verse 29, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, but now in the new covenant, guys, don't worry, just chill. It's all, it's all fine now. You can do what you like. He says this, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And he goes on to say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What I'm trying to get across is that uh, just because the Bible doesn't say in the new covenant we don't have to, you know, tithing is not there, it, the expectation from the Lord is not, oh, well, that's great, I can, I can give less the standard is less. God expects new covenant believers to be more holy because we have more light. We have the Holy Spirit in a, in a special way that Old Testament saints didn't have. We understand we are this side of the cross. We have all these blessings and so if anything, this, the standard is raised. I'm not going to put a percentage on it or anything like that. The Bible says proportionately and we'll look at that. But I simply want to get that across. 
that we mustn't think, oh, because I live on this side and God just wants me to give cheerfully, that I, you know, as long as I can maintain my standard of living and if I have anything left over, yeah, then maybe I'll, I'll help out. Uh, that would be a wrong attitude. So let's look at these three tithes in the Old Covenant and then see how, how they are used in the New and how that applies to us. So the first tithe is a tithe for priests. Uh, Numbers chapter 18, you can turn there. Verse 21. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. Their service in the tent of meeting. And then skip down to verse 24. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. So very clear, uh, as I've mentioned already, support for the, the Levites, the priests. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, when we come into the New Covenant, it is support for vocational ministers, for those who preach God's Word. So jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7. So Paul here is arguing that those who proclaim the gospel, those who are in vocational ministry, should be supported by the local congregation. And he uses a series of, of rhetorical questions, and the answer to each one is no one. So look at that, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Now I want you to see what Paul does here. He's going to quote the law from the Old Testament about animals and then apply it in light of the coming of Christ to uh, ministers. And you might think, sure, our minister is a bit of an animal. Uh, so this is appropriate. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, verse 9. You shall, you, for it says in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, so the, the teaching here was uh, you would use oxen to, to crush the, the, the grain, to, to get the chaff off of the grain. They would walk around. They would be sort of tied to something. And they would walk and, and they would crush the the, the chaff off of the grain so that they could separate them. But the animal gets hungry and grain is nice, I assume, for, for oxen. And so they would eat some of it. And the law said you're not allowed to muzzle them. You can't say, I don't want the oxen eating my, my grain. And God actually makes a law. No, you cannot do that because it's working and so it needs to be paid for what it's doing. And then Paul says this, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And now Paul brings us application. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, those who who come and bring spiritual teaching, who teach the Word of God, who sow spiritual things, they should be paid for that. They should be supported for that. 
Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? So he has a direct connection. He goes straight back to the Levites. He says, do you know how they survived, how the priesthood survived? They got their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So notice the connection Paul makes between Old Testament priests, the Levites, and New Testament preachers and teachers of God's word. There's no more priests, there's no more Levitical priesthood anymore. We're in the New Covenant. But what, is, what does all of that have to teach us? Well, it's support for those in, in ministry, those who preach and teach, those who sow spiritual things, should reap physical things. Let me give you some more verses just to hammer the point home. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So one of the things I've found over the years with the Potch church plant, quite fascinating, I've never sort of seen it anywhere else, and I think it's just because of the nature of Potchestrom and, and uh, sort of transient and it's more of a student town, is that we often get people coming here, they'll say, no, my other, you know, that's my church, but I come here to be fed. <laughs> what does the scripture say? Where you are fed is where you should be giving. Okay? Uh, this, where, where someone is sowing spiritually, is laboring in God's word, is exegeting the passage, is studying learning, carefully preparing hours and hours every week to prepare sermons, to make it understandable and relevant and apply it and trusting God to use it. And then you just take it for free. No, it's fine. It's just, it's just, uh, I won't pay for that. It doesn't matter. It's, it's their job. That's what they're, they're supposed to do. Paul is saying you can't do that. The one who who sows spiritual things should reap physical things. Your commitment is to the local church where you are fed, where you receive instruction in God's Word. If you are a member, you must share with those who, who teach you. Another, another question that sometimes arises, it won't, it's not, it won't arise yet at, at Potch, uh, but... Lord willing, as the church grows, uh, maybe you come to the AGM and there's a lot of money in the bank account and you're like, there's a lot of money here. I don't need to give here. I'm going to give somewhere else. Because, you know, they're doing fine. Paul doesn't put that as a caveat. You give here. Now, uh, the idea is that if there is a lot of money at, Her at, at Heritage, there are always plans. So I can speak for Heritage in, in Johannesburg. Uh, we're... We're not about saving money up, you know, building a you know a cash pile for some tribulation or something like that. Uh, no, we we have plans. We want to plant more churches. We want to train more people in ministry. Uh, we want to send out missionaries. We want to do all of these things. Maybe buy a larger building. All of these things. If if you're at a church where they're just hoarding money for the sake of hoarding money, that's wrong. Uh, and I trust that. Heritage Potchestrom would never be in that place. If there does seem to be a lot of money, you must know that there are plans. There's a reason for that. Okay? So at the moment, 
building up cash reserves because, Lord willing, we want to have, to be honest, full-time pastor here. And that takes money to support someone full-time. Uh, but don't use that as an excuse. Paul says, the place where you are fed is where you need to give. You need to support those who labor. 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So notice Paul here uses the same analogy that he used in 1 Corinthians 9. Don't muzzle the ox. He says an elder who rules well and labors in teaching and preaching, if, if any of the pastors at Heritage ever become lazy, well, then you need to deal with that. It's talking about those who are not lazy, that are laboring in God's Word, that are preaching God's Word, that are studying God's Word. They need to be supported. In here it says, considered worthy of double honor. Uh, there's a lot of debate over exactly what that means, but whatever it means, it means that vocational pastors who labor and rule well should be well supported. Some churches, they sort of have this ideology uh, about the pastor. Uh, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Okay. Uh, that's ungodly. It's not saying that, you know, the pastor should have a Bentley or something like that. We're not prosperity movement. That's ungodly as well. But the pastor should be able to live. Should be able to go on holiday. Should be able to educate his children. Should be able to... Uh, you, Many pastors, at least in Reformed denominations, are highly educated. They have many degrees. Uh, they're not just some guys just you know, watching YouTube and stealing it. <laughs> uh, they're working hard. And so they need to be cared for. And I'm talking about ordinarily. We understand if there was, you know, South African economy crashed and, and we're all in a predicament. That's a different thing. But ordinarily, pastors who labor in God's Word should be cared for and supported. Uh, really, you don't want them to be worrying financially. That's the ideal. Uh, not super wealthy, not like, you know, overseas holidays, <laughs> uh, but just that they can just get on with studying God's Word, with counseling people, with evangelizing, and not in the back of their head. They're always worried about finances. That's really where you want to, want to get as a, as a congregation. Uh, now, what's the motivation for this? Um, if you go away thinking, oh, well, Rian's a nice guy, yeah, I think we'll, we'll give uh, more, uh, then you've missed it. Uh, or if you're like, well, I've been told to do it, so I need to do it, then you've also missed it. Our motivation for everything must be because it's to the Lord. In Philippians 4, verse 14, Paul talks about the, the financial support that he received from, from the, the church at Philippi. How they partnered with him. And that word has the idea of financial support. Uh, verse 16, he says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And notice then what Paul says. So he says, you supported me financially. He says, that's not the thing. It's not about me. He says, but when you guys give generously, it, it increases to your credit. 
a church that is stingy, a congregation that is stingy, a congregation that is selfish, what sort of fruit is that? What does that say about your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you see what Paul is getting at? A church that is generous is showing something about their relationship with Jesus Christ. A church that is kind and thoughtful. And then he says, that, that money that, that he received from them, he says it's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, all those sacrifices, you can go and read about the sacrifices, pretty gruesome. Who knows how many animals were slaughtered over that sort of 1,400-year period. Uh, just when Solomon dedicates the temple, so many animals slaughtered. Sometimes there's burnt, whole burnt offerings. The whole animal is just burnt up. It's not roasted and, well, oh, that's it's like a braai. It's like, it's burnt up. It's that acrid smell. But you know what the Bible says? It's, it's a pleasing aroma to God. It was symbolic. The whole burnt offering was saying, Lord, I want to give myself wholly to you. And symbolically, here, take this animal. It's going to cost me. It's an agrarian culture. It's going to cost me, but take it all. That's what I want to do. And that's why what Paul picks up on in Romans, isn't he, in chapter 12. Offer your body a living sacrifice. Give your whole self to the Lord. When you give financially, when you support those in ministry, notice what Paul says, it's a fragrant offering. You're bringing pleasure to God. It's a sweet aroma in his nostrils. That should be your motivation. When the sermon's not so good and you're like, oh, I don't want to give so much this month. <laughs> no, what, what's going to keep you going? It's as to the Lord. Notice that theme over and over again in Scripture. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Employees, submit to your employers as to the Lord. Submit to the government as to the Lord. Our motivation is always ultimately to the Lord. That's what's going to keep you going in those difficult times. It is, it is pleasing to God because our God is a giving God. He is a generous God. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You're acting in, in, a, in a tiny sense. You're imitating the Lord. You're giving sacrificially. That's the first tithe, and I hope you can see how then it, it is applied in the new covenant. It's to support those who labor in teaching and preaching, to support those in, in ministry. The second tithe is for the needy. So Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of, the, of your hands that you do. And so, uh, as I said, every third year there is this tithe, and um, the stranger, the fatherless, uh, the needy, those who don't have anything are to come and able to. To be supported. Uh, now, of course, I don't need to spend too much time. I hope you know that when you come into the new covenant, that principle continues. Care for those who are needy within the covenant community. 
Acts chapter 4 says this in, in the, the early church, the New Testament church. Uh, you know that they had all things in common. They were caring for one another. Uh, verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them. Uh, and that's a quotation from the Old Testament. The expectation within the nation of Israel was that there wouldn't be a needy person in the covenant community. Remember, even the gleaning laws, you can go and read the book of Ruth, uh, caring for the, the poor, providing for the poor, looking after them, very sophisticated laws to make sure that people did not go without. And so it's the same today. Uh, may it never be that any member at Heritage Baptist Church in Potchefstroom ever goes without food or goes without shelter or clothing. It should never happen. You're, now, some sick people say, but what about people in the world and things like that? Well, that's different. Well, it's not to say we aren't to care for those outside, but our first commitment is to the people of God. Do good to all people, but especially to the household of faith. Now again, as I say, it's under ordinary circumstances. If we're all, you know, if, if the whole economy's crashed and the whole country's crashed, then you know we're all on the streets, and that's a different thing. Uh, but ordinarily, it's not like that. Uh, and so, you should ensure that if there are needy people in the church, they are looked after, they are cared for, widows and orphans, those who are vulnerable. Now again, it's there are a lot of. Um, uh, principles that one should apply, uh, and and as uh, deacons are are appointed in the church, uh, they will they will care more about those practical things and uh, deal with those practical things. And it's not just a matter of shame. This person, you know, please help me. I need five hundred rand. He has five hundred rand. It's the Lord's money that he's entrusted to the church, and so the deacons will be taught in how to do that. Uh, the deacons at, at, in Johannesburg. What they will do if someone is needy, facing financial difficulties, they will walk a road with them, they'll teach them how to use finances, they'll ask them for their bank statements, they will go through all of these things. You know that, that story, you know, you give a person a fish, you feed them for one day, but you teach a person to fish, you feed them for the rest of their life. You know, it's that idea. It's about discipling people, and it's the same when it comes to to money. So uh, the Bible doesn't teach we're just we're gullible and we just give out money to everyone. Uh, the, the, the money will be carefully used, but the principle is there. We must care for, for one another. Um, I also just want to say, I think a lot of people have overinterpreted Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know that that account, uh, and so people are, you know, think that means you must be very secretive about giving. But I don't think Jesus is talking about that. He's talking about spontaneous giving. Um, you know, when you when you, you you're not sort of consulting. It's spontaneous. It's just out of the abundance of your heart. There's a need, and so you give. Okay? Have you ever felt like that? I felt like that sometimes. If I if I get takeaways on the road. You ever done that, and then you like got your meal there, and you you're uh, pulling out, and then you see a lady and a child on the side of the road, and you're like, uh, like <laughs> what's going on there? So I, I'm not very spontaneous in that moment. I'm not spontaneously saying, 
They need this far more than me. I can go 40 days apparently without eating. So uh, that's the idea. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's not saying something about your giving must be very secretive and very... No, the Bible is unashamed about those who gave. The Bible tells us the ladies supported Jesus' ministry. It tells us about Lydia and how generous she was. I'm not saying Jesus is talking about those who boast about how much they give. Remember the Pharisees, they sort of blew a trumpet. That's, of course, wrong. Uh, but I do think that you want to breed a culture where we can sort of, as brothers and sisters, when you walk around with someone, like challenge them, how's your giving? It's good to have role models of generous people. I, um, again, it's always, sometimes people have a, we're going to take people into membership. Some people have issues with membership uh, because they say, I don't see it in the Bible. When you go and read the book of Acts, it was way more severe. You know that they knew how much everyone was giving. Not just, you know, you need to become a member. It was like, we know what you're giving. Okay? We're tracking your bank statements. Okay? <laughs> Uh, that's, the, that's the amount of accountability there was in the early church. Okay? We're not calling for that. Um, but, but to be part, to say there were no lists and there was no acknowledgement of who's in and who's out is, is, is a wrong reading of Scripture. Okay? People knew and they belonged and there was a community. And so um, I, th I think it's important that we have a uh, not talking about to everyone, but your close brothers and sisters, those that you walk a road with, can be able to say, how's your giving? How's your heart when it comes to generosity? Where we can confess, we can say, sure, I'm battling at the moment, I'm feeling very selfish. Uh, don't overinterpret the left hand, right hand uh, statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so Judaism had this, this very sophisticated system of supporting the widows, when people became Christians and they're kicked out of the temple, that's what happens early on in the book of Acts. You know, that's where deacons are established because now they have to start caring for the widows. And so the church needs to do that as well. Um, verse 16 in Galatians says now that, sorry, chapter 16, verse 1, no, not chapter 16. Anyway, uh, this is, sorry, this is in um, chapter 16 of Acts. Verse 1, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatians to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Okay. Uh, so, oh, sorry, this is 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, so notice what he says here. Uh, he tells the church, he says, this is what you need to do. You need to plan. So he has some principles for giving. You need to plan. You're going to give. The first day of the week. That's when they gathered. So he has, this is just a bonus for you if you have friends who are Seventh-day Adventists. He has a strong verse. So on the first day of the week, that's when they met. It would be weird if they met on Saturday and then he says, collect the money on Sunday. Uh, no, they met. When you meet on the first day of the week, uh, set aside a sum of money. So it's regular. Your giving is regular. It's planned in keeping with your income. So it's proportionate. So, uh, at least in Johannesburg, there are some people earning tremendous amounts of money who should be giving a lot more than 
it's proportionate. And so that's, it's not to say, well, it's just 10% and it doesn't matter. I also want to say, those of you who are students, because I know students never have money, <laughs> but try and start planning now while you're a student just to give sacrificially. Start to build that habit. Because I'm sure you already know that those habits that we build, you can't say, no, when I, you know, when I get a job, then I'll start giving. And then you're like, ah, when I get a better job, then I'll start giving. And when I start now, just, just a little bit. Don't think, ah, oh, but it's just 20 rand. What's that going to do? No, you see, it's, it's the principle. It, it's you're, you're giving. You're giving sacrificially. You're giving uh, proportionately. It, it's starting to build that, that habit. Um, and it is a wonderful thing uh, to support God's work and, and to be a part of that. Okay, then the last one, which I hope will, will blow your mind. Uh, tithe for feasts. Okay? They had to set aside money for banquets. Isn't that amazing? It is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. You shall tithe, this is the Lord speaking, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, so if you can't take all your grain and all your animals, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, verse 25, then you shall turn it into money. So go and sell it and just turn it into cash. In your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend, listen to this, and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. You want to check that it's in the Bible? <laughs> you can go and check. And uh, you won't find it's a textual variant or anything. Uh, it's, it's there. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Now, I, I don't know what your background is, but so many people have a view of Christianity that it is boring and dull and full of laws and God is out there to, you know, there was a definition of Puritans, if you've ever heard of the Puritans from England, there was a definition that a Puritan is someone who has a sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere is happy. Okay. <laughs> and maybe you think that's what Christianity is. Like, I don't want to become a Christian. I know yeah, I need to become a Christian, but yeah, it's just these morbid, dull people. They're anti-everything. They're boring. They don't know how to have fun. Uh, they like those old black and white photographs from Harvard or something. <laughs> you know, you see those old Christian theologians and they look so <laughs> uh, sad. Uh, this blows that up. Christians are the only ones who know how to have true fun and how to truly enjoy anything. Because we don't make it ultimate. We can enjoy it and, and not be disheartened at the end. You know that feeling when you think, this will make me happy. 
I used to think, sure, when I get my first job, when I get my first paycheck, I can buy as much biltong as I like. Because yeah. I always wanted to buy biltong. It was so expensive. And then I got my paycheck, bought a whole lot of biltong, and then I felt sick afterwards. Okay? And it's always like that. If you put all your hope in the things of this world, but if your hope is in the Lord, we can enjoy everything. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Uh, yeah, it's food and drink. Not drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. The drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. But God has given us wine to gladden our hearts. The psalmist tells us. God has given us these things to enjoy. He's given us bodies to enjoy. He's given us creation to in, enjoy. Uh, one person said this. He said, the world drinks to forget, but Christians drink to remember. Isn't that brilliant? Uh, there's a total difference. God comes along and he says, Israel, I want you to set aside 10% of your income for a party. The, theme, the title for this sermon is Pastors, Poverty, and Parties. Okay? The three tithes. Support those in ministry, support the needy, and to have a party. To enjoy the good gifts from God. Now notice what it says here. God says, I want you to do this, to enjoy these things, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Isn't that amazing? We can't bring those two together in our head. We think, no, they're, they're separate. That's why Christians often battle with guilt. Like, I can't really enjoy stuff because then, then I'm not being a proper Christian. No, you've missed it. You're doing it wrong. If you can't bring the two together, that as God's people we can gather and have a feast, and that causes us to fear God. If your idea of fearing God is slavish tyranny and terror and running away, it's a wrong fear. One of the Puritans wrote about the fear of God. He says, a true fear of God brings you closer to God. I'm sure I've used the example here before, but I think it's such a great analogy of those who surf uh, or climb high mountains, uh, you know, surf big waves. It's fearful things, climbing high mountains, surfing big waves. You know, you can lose your life, and yet they draw, they love it, don't they? There's this, this pull, they're drawn towards it, and yet there's this, this, this respect, this reverence. Okay? That's the idea, this awe of, of God. Now, what happens in the New Covenant? Well, when we come to the New Covenant, we find that the church meets for what Jude calls love feasts. And I hate that word, love feast. It sounds like some Marilyn Manson cult hippie <laughs> sort of... <laughs> weird thing. Uh, I, I thought of fellowship feast is maybe better. Uh, but if you think of a better term, please WhatsApp me. Uh, I put it out to our church and, and uh, someone said pastor's party, but I didn't really like that one too, too much either. Um, but if you think of a better one, because I don't think love, love feast sounds a bit cultish nowadays. Um, but that's what they did. They got together and they had feasts. Acts 2.44, all, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling da da, da. Uh, Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. That's not communion. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think if the church uh, started to get this right, where, where God's people gathered, because remember, this is not talking about your birthday party or something. Remember in, in Deuteronomy, it's talking about when they, they would gather with God's people in the place where he put his name. So it's, it's religious in nature. Okay, so it's not like I'm, I'm going to budget for my birthday party or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it's with God's people that you are coming together. Maybe it's smaller groups. Maybe it's the whole church together. But those gatherings are, are critical. They're so important. And isn't it wonderful, the link here to God adding people? I think if unbelievers started to see Christians gathering and just rejoicing in the good gifts that God has given, properly, without drunkenness, without gluttony, uh, without trying to find happiness in those things themselves, but as, as they point us to the Lord, uh, they'll see what true Christianity is all about. Now, maybe some of you sit there and you say, but what about people who are starving? And that can be from a good place to, to worry. But what about those who are, are less fortunate? But I do want to say to you, you need to be careful. The Bible never uses guilt as a means to... to get us to do anything in that way to give it doesn't say uh, you guys should give because um, I, I remember uh, I, I'm giving my age away I suppose but um, I know I look incredibly young but I mean, <laughs> but when I was growing up there were terrible famines in Ethiopia and um, often on TV they would show footage and then they would say you know give and so it was really guilt-based. And it is easy to guilt people into giving. But Paul doesn't do that. He calls us to give cheerfully and joyfully. He doesn't want us to be guilted into to giving. Um, and so the Bible never anywhere says, you know, guys, you shouldn't enjoy the good things God has given you because there's some people who don't have those good things. It doesn't do that. It says if God has given you good things, enjoy them to His glory. Uh, so be careful of, of thinking like that in a, in a wrong way. Remember Judas? Judas thought like that. Remember the, the lady who brought the alabaster box and broke it? What did Judas say? What a waste. We could have sold this. We could have got money for the poor. Uh, and the Lord rebukes him, doesn't he? So there are things God has given us that we must enjoy to, to him. Same with the Lord Jesus, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. That's what the Pharisees said about Jesus. Jesus didn't say, guys, I'm not going to enjoy this feast because there's people who don't have. No. That's where he found himself, and so he ate and, ate and drank. And God had blessed him with those things. Uh, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Again, one of my favorite passages. The very first miracle performed. Jesus performs. I don't know if you've ever thought, what if you were the Lord Jesus? What would your first miracle be? And where would it be? Like maybe you'd raise someone from the dead in Rome. Like what would it be? It's really going to define your ministry. It's going to say, what am I all about? The very first miracle Jesus performs is turning water into wine. He prolongs this wedding feast. He prolongs the party. 
And so again, if you have a misconception about Christianity, uh, that it's, it's dead and all of these things, no, you, then you just don't understand it. Go and look at Jesus in his first miracle. just want to read one more passage, 1 Timothy 6.17, just to help you with this, because I understand sometimes it is from a good place. But let me say this. Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now notice that Jesus doesn't, or so Paul doesn't say, Guys, you should feel guilty because you're rich. Now, of course, if someone has become rich through, through corruption or stealing, that's a different matter. Uh, but if it's through inheritance or work, uh, that wealth, God has given it to you so you can be a blessing to others, that you can support church plants, you can support those in ministry, you can care for the needy. Okay? But he hasn't said, say, well, you should feel guilty because you have more than somebody else. God has given it to you to use, to do good work. So that's very, very important. I know people in Johannesburg, they bought larger vehicles so they can give lifts to more people. Now you could look at them and say, sure, that guy's got a large vehicle. I can't believe it. He's so... You don't know how he's using it. I know people who bought larger houses so that they can have students staying with them. They can have show more hospitality. So the issue isn't, isn't wealth. The issue is... How are you using it? Are you using it to do good? And so uh, God has given us these things to enjoy. Um, and they all of these things, so I would just say this last one I think is a great one. And uh, uh, we're, we're wanting to, back in Janusburg, wanting to implement it on a more regular basis to have just church gatherings where we uh, encouraging people to save up and we come together and we just enjoy fellowship and good food and drink together uh, as unto the Lord and, and just a, a wonderful thing to do because the early church definitely got together. I don't have time to go to all the passages. They got together for these, for these meals, for these feasts. Uh, and it's an important thing. And then it all points to the final feast, isn't it? The marriage feast of the Lamb. Um, I love the way the Bible puts it. There's going to be a wedding and there's going to be a feast. Uh, we have a lot of weddings coming up uh, back, in, back home. And um, the thing I love about weddings is the food. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'll be the only one. I know you all think it. Uh, <laughs> but I love that Jesus thinks the same way. The focus is on the feast. Okay? It's the food and the drink. It's the good things that God has given us to enjoy. And so when we gather as God's people, and on a, on a secondary application, it's just hospitality, budget for hospitality as well. Hospitality is expensive nowadays, isn't it? Start to budget for it. So, as you think about giving, support a local church where you are fed spiritually. Support, don't take it for free. You, you don't like it when you don't get paid. It's like, no, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Uh, I'm not going to pay you this month. Eh? So support those who labor. Care for the needy. Um, 
and then also budget to show hospitality and to gather as God's people too, to enjoy a feast together. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these, these rich and beautiful principles, Lord. We uh, do pray for heritage here in Potchefstroom, that you would um, just continue to work in the congregation here and just as it grows, it would grow as a generous and kind and a church that gives cheerfully, a church that enjoys your gifts uh, without guilt or shame, but as a means to glorify you and to fear you. Uh, and so just pray your richest blessing. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you are the ultimate gift. Um, thank you, Father, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. And May all the, the feasts and all the hospitality that we enjoy here be a little faint pointer to that wonderful feast that we will enjoy forever and ever. And so please do this, and may you be glorified in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.